there, it's Jonathan Strickland, and I'm here to introduce a playlist of 10 episodes of my podcast, Tech Stuff, that are all about entertainment and entertainment-related fields, from video games to television series to films to internet videos from yesteryear. So I hope you guys enjoy these episodes. You can go to the Tech Stuff podcast page and subscribe to listen to all sorts of episodes about tech from all realms. And hopefully this will provide a little bit of entertainment, a little bit of education, and probably more than a few puns because that's kind of how I roll. Enjoy this playlist. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech, and we're listening to another playlist episode. This one is called Tron, He Fights for the Users, where we speak with the director of the original movie Tron and how all of that came together. It turns out that was a pretty remarkable effort. Uh, it gave the look of computer graphics in some places where it was really hand-drawn animation. Uh, it did use CGI as well, but it was an interesting, you know, kind of uh, marriage of all those arts, live action, computer animation, and hand-drawn animation. So let's take a listen. Tron follows the story of a character named Flynn, who is a video game designer and hacker who once was the employee of a corporation called Encom. One of Flynn's co-workers named Dillinger stole Flynn's work and arranged Flynn's removal from the company and covered it all up. Flynn plans a daring computer raid on the company with the help of two of his former co-workers. His big goal is to uncover the actual evidence that, in fact, Dillinger stole Flynn's work. And his big opponent in this raid is an artificial intelligent construct. It's a piece of code. It's some software. It's called the Master Control Program, or MCP. Now, originally, that started out as a chess game, but it had started to assimilate other programs into its own code and systematically growing more powerful as a result. So imagine sort of like the Borg absorbing other entities to gain more strength. That's kind of what the MCP is doing. It gets more and more capability as it absorbs other programs. So while Flynn is trying to break into Encom's systems, the MCP detects him and uses a laser to convert Flynn into digital information and essentially upload him to the computer. That pulls Flynn into the computer world, and there Flynn encounters programs. And in the world of the computer simulation, or the computer environment, these programs have the appearance of humans in this universe. They also resemble their creators, whoever programmed them. One of those programs is Tron. The name is short for electronic. Tron is a security program and is designed to keep an eye on the MCP, but he also acts kind of like a gladiator in various games that the MCP forces programs to participate in. And as some people mention within the context of the film, he fights for the users. It's one of my favorite quotes from Tron. Users in the Tron universe are sort of seen as like gods. They are the creators. 
And the programs look to users for guidance and for approval, and they have had all communication cut off by the MCP. So they wonder if the users are still out there. There's this whole existential crisis going on in the world of Tron. And that's an interesting piece of the mythology of the movie. Flynn eventually, of course, helps bring down the MCP and he escapes the computer world. He's also able to prove that Dillinger stole his work and he ends up becoming the new head of income as a result. Now, the film was not a big success at the box office, but it did find itself a cult following and also had a profound impact on the way people would visualize cyberspace. I would even say that you could see elements of the design from Tron find its way into early implementations of virtual reality. And the production of the film itself relied heavily on some really innovative work from numerous people in order for the film to actually come into being. So, Ramsey, the wonder producer arranged for me to have an interview with the writer and director of Tron, Steven Lisberger. What follows is our conversation about the technology he used to create the movie, as well as his philosophy about technology and stuff in general, really, the things that informed the creation of Tron. I hope you enjoy. Steven Lisberger, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for joining Tech Stuff. My pleasure. Now, before we jump into Tron, and I've got a lot of things to ask about for Tron, uh, may, my listeners would probably appreciate understanding a little bit about your background leading up to Tron. You had a background in uh, animation leading up yeah, to that. I, uh, I come from the East Coast. I was born in New York and went to college in uh, Boston at Tufts and went to the School of the Museum of Fine Arts where I studied film for five years, including animation. And I had my own company in Boston that did some live action, but primarily animation. And uh, we eventually ended up with a studio on the East Coast and one on the West Coast. Uh, where, and our biggest job was doing Animal Olympics for the uh, NBC television network. And uh, during that, we developed... Tron, and then uh, tried to do it independently, but we couldn't pull it off, so uh, we were fortunate enough to uh, get in business with uh, Disney. Yeah, I imagine a, a project with the scope of Tron would have been extremely challenging to pull off without some some pretty major uh, help, and I also imagine that Disney's background in animation uh, led to some some aid when you guys were working on Tron, because I don't know that people who have seen the film are really aware how much actual hand-drawn animation uh, techniques were, were incorporated. This was an era before computer graphics had reached that digital age where you do everything, you know, digitally on a computer and then you can just export to a video file. This is way before all of that. So uh, I imagine Disney's involvement was somewhat helpful because that was a studio that actually understood animation. Yeah, all of that is true. And um, just to unpack that, um, if we had tried to do it independently, I think it would have, we wouldn't have made it. Eventually we would have had to either go under or bring in someone else because we were somewhat naive. We had an uh, idea how we would do it, but we, I, in retrospect, 
the scale of it was something that none of us had experienced with. On paper, we thought we could work it all out. It, it added up and made sense. But when we got into it at, at Disney many times, I thought, I'm really glad we're here and not in any other studio. Because as you said, we, we, had, ha- we had hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pieces of artwork. Um, put in indiv- just the frame blow-ups, every individual frame of the electronic world blown up, shot in 70 millimeter and blown up. They were, when they were stacked up, they filled two entire moving vans. Wow. I mean, it was tons and tons and tons of images. And, um, it, it didn't freak Disney out. Because they said, yeah, we're used to handling millions of pieces of artwork. And in the end, that was totally the strength production-wise of the project because we, all of us working on it were familiar with animation. Even the live-action people had quite a bit of experience in animation. So we sort of took the best from live-action, and then we turned the whole live-action movie into an animated movie. And once it was at that level, you could treat it like mass production. You could just keep multiplying the number of teams working on the individual scenes. And, and there was a system there. We weren't reinventing the wheel. That system existed. People knew how to do, you know, animated effects and how to work with these numbers of probably, it had to be over a million pieces in the end. And um, the funny thing about it is how efficient it was because we ended up doing all of the special effects in Tron 1 in half the time that it took to do them in Tron 2. <laughs> well, and, and correct me if I got this, get any of this wrong. I want to see if I can kind of lay out for my listeners sort of uh, a general approach to the electronic world sequences, which took up more, almost an entire hour of Tron. I think about somewhere around the realm of 53 to 55 minutes, something like that of, of footage yeah. in this electronic world. Well, so, the, the thing is there was an underlying template that I had in mind, which is, you know, a, a sort of live action short at the beginning, then followed by an animated movie is what Disney used to make. And, you know, they always did that with their live action films. Sure. And uh, animated and live or live and animated. And so that combination is what I was going for. You know, it's sort of a, it's it's kind of an animated feature in terms of that length of about 70 minutes with the live action being kind of a short at the beginning. So, And the way that would work out, like you said, you shot on 70 millimeter, enlarge each frame because... Like to remind my listeners, some of whom are are too young to really remember the days of film, this you yeah, were shooting well, on physical people, film. It's really funny, you know. Once time moves on, and people forget about how difficult it was in the past, it's a little bit like the next generation doesn't really care how difficult it was right. before. And you know, there was no way to composite film. If you, that was efficient. If you did effects and you had characters and you had a fantasy background, there really was no good way to put all of this together. Blue screen existed, but I've shot blue screen and 
you know, if if you had, at the time, if you had 20 or 50 blue screen shots in the film, that was a lot. Well, we had 900 composite shots that we had to do. 900 shots that had human beings in worlds that didn't exist, plus their costumes were supposed to be glowing. And there was no digital compositing. You couldn't even run computer animation consecutively. We only had enough computing power. We had total two megabytes. And we only had enough memory to render one frame at a time, period. So you could never look at the light cycles moving. You could only look at this individual frame then you had to wait 45 minutes and render the next frame and look at that one. And the only time we ever saw the stuff put together is after we set up a film camera and clicked, like in an animated movie, one frame at a time off of this computer animation. Right. And then we would all go into the screening room and sit there. Even the guys that did all the computer work had never seen it moving. And we saw it for the very first time when we, you know, filmed it one frame at a time and then ran it back. And so to put all of this together, to composite it, the only way we could do it was to do blow up every frame and make it into an animated movie. And what we did to combine it with the computer animation was to try to find a sort of middle ground where the live action would look like it had been rendered by a computer and the computer animation wasn't too attempting to look too real because we couldn't do real. Many of the looks in the, uh, the computer aspects of Tron looked the way they looked because, not because we sat there and said, oh, wouldn't this look great in wireframe instead of fully rendered? No, no, no. It was wireframe because that's all we could do. <laughs> and it's phenomenal to, to give a sense of scale. You're talking about 24 frames a second with film. Every single one of those frames being for the electronic world being uh, blown up so that animators can go in and, and hand draw elements onto those frames. Each of those frames having to go through multiple exposures, depending upon how many colors you had, because each time you added a, a different color, you had to do another love. You had to photograph everything all over again. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're talking 75,000 frames if you start doing the math, if you're thinking 53 minutes. I think it's more than that because, well, I don't want to do the math <laughs> right now, but <laughs> it, I think, well, the thing is, it's um, if you go through the math, you say this can't be done because just doing the colors on each frame, the average number of exposures was, I think, 18 some of the frames in Tron were exposed 36 times. Wow. And because everything had to be held in focus so that the blow-ups were sharp, and the blow-ups are about the size of a placemat, there was no depth of field at 70 millimeter at those light levels. So it wasn't, those cameras, those 70 millimeter cameras were used by David Lean to shoot Lawrence of Arabia. And afterwards, I really understood why, because in the desert, there's enough light. But for any of the situations we were in, I, 
I had to shoot characters when they were speaking to each other and over the shoulder shots. They had to be shot on separate passes. So I would have Bruce in the foreground with no Jeff that he was talking to, looking at, and I'd get him in focus, and then I'd get him out of the frame, and then I'd bring in Jeff, and he'd say his lines, and I'd shoot them separately, each one held in focus, and then they were put together. But, um, yeah, the, the, in animation, there's a thing called an exposure sheet, and it shows, it tells the animation cameraman what levels are photographed and what order, and there, there's about, I don't know, three seconds of animation per exposure sheet. And so what we did was we took those exposure sheets, and instead of that sheet being filled in for three seconds, which is 72 frames, it was one frame in Tron. Wow. One exposure sheet per whole sheet, three seconds of animation per individual frame. But again, it was only possible to put all of this together through animation. We were under an extreme deadline. I heard all, I never was given a real good reason by Disney why we were in such a rush, but we were. And I've heard various theories over the years that there was, you know, some competition in the marketplace that summer. And so that's why they wanted us to come out then. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I wonder what would have happened if we had come out the following winter, which made more sense. And that would have given us six more months. I mean, it was, the deadline was so severe that um, we took only one day off every 14 days. Wow. That was the legal limit. So um, we would work 13 days and then we get one day off and then we work 13 days and get one day off and to complete the re photography of all these blown up frames um at the end i think we had 12 this division animation stands going 24 hours a day three shifts on each and um the, the strain on the film in terms of getting it done from a director standpoint, that was kind of crazy. But because I was new to this, you know, I just accepted it. But um, the picture was after I shot all the live action, the, the film had to be completed in three weeks, locked. So not one frame of the movie could be changed. Frames could be taken out and removed, but I couldn't change or add anything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, now directors get three or four months to live with their movie in the editing room. I had three weeks after that it was locked. And the thing that's interesting is what I had to lock was actors in their unaltered Tron suits on an all-black stage. And then I had no computer animation yet because that wasn't done. So when I locked the movie and said, this is the movie I'm making, there were no effects in it. There were no colors in it. It was black and white. Many of the scenes just had individual actors because, you know, it was one or the other, like I said. And there was just storyboards or little little frames that said, effect goes here of Solar Sailor. And 
at that point, I had to say, okay, I sign off. This is the movie we're going to release. Wow. And from there on, we just did nine months of filling it all in. It's, um, yeah, in retrospect, it was insane. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time... I mean, compared, compared to working on Tron 2, Tron Legacy, mm -hmm. where everything was composited in real time, where you could just put the you know computer animation together with the backgrounds, together with the actors... And, you know, you could make changes up until, like, I don't know, a couple of weeks before the movie was in theaters. Yeah, th this is a time where you can't even you can't even review the footage immediately afterward, obviously, because you've got the film. You have to process everything. So, that, oh, yeah, of course. There's no video tap. I mean, you know, you shoot it and it goes off to the lab and then you see it the next day in dailies at lunchtime. Um there was also no time to do reshoots or redos. Um, I mean, it was standard procedure on Tron Legacy that when effect shots or shots were composited, that there'd be multiple redos on each shot, every frame. It was none of that. I mean, we were flying blind, and then we had to commit. Um, once in a while, when something was really screwed up, I would get to redo it or reshoot a recomposite. But often what we did, we'd say, okay, there's a mistake. How can we incorporate this mistake into the visuals or into the story? And uh, we just went with it. So, yeah. Yeah, I imagine that meant that you had a lot of uh, storyboarding that was very precise from the very get-go so that you could... Uh, you could as, as well, the, the team of talented people I had was unbelievable. Once in a lifetime. I, it was one of the great joys of making the film. And, uh, yeah, incredible. I mean, the team I had from Lisberger Studios, my guys some of whom came from Disney originally and then left Disney and worked at Lisberger Studios, and then ironically they found themselves back at Disney. But um, we storyboarded the whole film before we ever got to Disney, and we did all this artwork for all the different you know, aspects, the MCP and the solar sailor and all the light cycles. That was all done, but it was done by us in-house. And... It was it was interesting that then when I got to Disney and they said, well, you know, if you wanted, if you could have a dream, what would it be? And I would say, well, I'd like Mobius to go over these storyboards. And then I'd like Sid Mead to go over our vehicle designs and, and both of them to go over my costume designs. And I'd like Peter Lloyd to go over production paintings. And so what, what worked out great is that we never approached these great artists and said to him, we just have a blank piece of paper. And now I'm going to explain to you what I'm trying to get to. It was, it was so much better that we said, look, this is as good as we can get this. And we're pretty confident that, you know, there's more room to improve this and they never let us down. And I think they really liked that, you know, 
because mm-hmm. they look at our artwork and they go, yeah, this is really nice, but this, or why didn't you do that, or why didn't you do this? And Mobius would say, you know, you could shoot this this way, but if you shot it from this angle, and if you showed this, then the audience would know that. And, uh, yeah, it was amazing. That's that's that is awesome, and it's great that you already had you know a, a nice idea to go in with, and not have to run the risk of asking an artist to contribute, uh, and then say, oh, but that doesn't really fit in what I was. Yeah, thinking. I know. And so, the, and the thing is, I wasn't used to this part of it either. The team that you know, my guys at, at Listener Studios. We would throw stuff out all the time, and we would say, well, you know, that looked good last week, but why don't we try this light cycle design this week? And it was a learning curve for me to work with, you know, Sid and Mobius, and and they would say, no, this is it. There are no changes. There's no revisions. I'm not doing this again. Yeah. That was... Amazing. <laughs> It'd be a lot, little bit like walking up to Da Vinci and saying, "Yeah, but uh, yeah, exactly. Could you, could it doesn't you, go that way. Could you it put does some your of the light cycle and he hands it to you? If, if, right. If, if you don't say to him, "Hey, Sid, what about this? You know, <laughs> we do that, you know? It, you know, how about mud flaps?" And it's like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> well, well, stepping back but a the little one bit. One thing that happened with the light cycles, I will interject this. And sure. It never bothered Sid. Is that? We sent the light cycles to Magi, which was Phil Middleman's company um, in New York. We had three computer companies. One was in New York State, and that's where Chris Wedge used to work, who went on to create Blue Sky Studios and do Ice Age. And then we had a company out here called Triple I, where Richard Taylor was. And then we also used Robert Abel's company, who was in Hollywood. But... When I sent the first light cycle drawings that Sid did to uh, Magi, they said, we can't do this. The, the curves are too complex. We can't render this. We don't have enough you know, power. It won't work. And I knew that you know, it was an incredible design. We all loved it. And... So I thought about it. This was, I remember this was over a weekend, some Sunday. And so then I said, how do I keep the integrity of Sid's design but simplify it for the computer? And you got to imagine it was already really simple in terms of color and shading. And then I, I don't know how, where I got this idea, but I got the idea of what if you took the bike, which was very 3D, and squeezed parts of it between two pieces of glass? to imagine that, squeezing it between two pieces of glass. So if you look at it from the side, what I did was I kept that fairing in the front the way Sid designed it, but I flattened everything else that was also full of all these compound curves, just like I was pressing a piece of glass against it. Mm -hmm. And, And that did it. We got enough of the complexity out of it so that the computer guys could do it. And by the way, I want to say one thing about uh, Magi that it was pretty funny, which is that the, one of the main reasons they're tanks in the first Tron movie is because when I first went to Magi, which was really early on, I was keeping track of their capabilities like years before we ever made Tron. 
their first major contract was with the military to do tank simulations. This was all the way back in the mid-70s. Mm-hmm. This was totally like far out crazy stuff, you know, DARPA stuff. And Magi was doing, you know, it looked like very crude video games, but it was tank-oriented. So then I, at some point, came to them and said, if, you know, if these chase vehicles are tanks, you're going to be able to, you know, do a lot of this pretty effectively because of your tank experience. And they said, yeah. So that's why, you know, the tanks worked out so well. Well, I'm I'm curious now, kind of stepping back from the the meta tech of how the movie came to be, and kind of diving into the uh, the actual content of the film itself. This is a, a really big treat for me because not only do I get to talk about filmmaking approaches and technology that I totally geek out about, but I can I can also talk about the mythology of Tron, which. Yeah is incredible. It's very prescient in a lot of ways that I, I'm not even certain that that you guys were uh, aware of at the time, like things that that to me became really big conversation points a decade or more further out from when the film came out. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I t- I'll tell you something that'll blow your mind. Sure. I had a revelation about the mythology of Tron, the first movie, two days ago. <laughs> I'm serious, because in discussions about Tron 2 and discussions about, you know, theoretical discussions about what a Tron 3 would be, all of a sudden it sheds light all the way back to the first film. Mm -hmm. And I realized, oh, this is why I was doing that, and I never really understood that, that clearly. So, you know, so, yeah, it's that aspect of it. it. It's funny, because... I like to talk about the technical achievement of Tron and the incredible work and the, all the talented people that worked on it. And I mean, talk about unsung heroes, you know, Richard with Richard Taylor and Bill Croyer did and, and their, the teams and all the three companies. I could go on all day about how great that whole group was. But then people go, oh, see, Lisberger, he's such a geek, you know, he doesn't love story or characters. And that's not true at all. I mean, what what actually got Tron, gave me the energy to make Tron, was not the geeky energy of computer graphics. What what motivated me for years and made me put everything on the line were the characters, and it was that story in particular. And then I got so excited because I saw that there was a chance we could actually do it with this technology. But um, looking back at it, um, I have to say that, you know, I was, I was inspired by the experiences of my own life up to that point, even though I was young. And the story works on many levels for me personally. Um, so, yeah, I care about that pretty deeply, I would say. Well, I mean, it's the effects of the film are phenomenal and I love them. But as people have pointed out numerous times over the years, effects don't make a story. 
And if you rely too heavily upon the, the bedazzle of effects and you sacrifice the story, then, you know, I, I don't find myself talking about those films later on. Right. I don't. Yeah. I know what you mean. There's nothing, to, um, nothing to hang on. Yeah, I know. Uh, well, they don't resonate past the, the, you know, the moment. The, the thing that I've been thinking about and the, 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 the revelation I just had recently is that if you look at, if you look at a movie like Star Wars mm-hmm. or, um, or an Avatar or um, Wonder Woman or Thor, Thor is a good example, the worlds of those films are epic. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing more epic than Nordic mythology, and space is as epic as it gets, and it's infinity, it's everything. So what happens in those films is that, well, a Star Wars or a Thor, what happens is that you get to have comedic characters because they make the the epic grandeur of the setting relatable. So, you know, it's called Star Wars, which is about as epic a title as you could ever come up with. But then, you know, Luke is kind of a goofy farm boy with his, you know, and his robot friends are, you know, pretty funny. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's how we relate to the epic. And the, the what I'm getting at where this connects with Tron is that Tron has is kind of the opposite formula, if you think about it. Because when we did Tron 1, all there was was, you know, Pong games. And no one looks at a Pong game and says, this is epic. You know, people stand out at night and look at the stars and say this is epic, but they don't stand in front of a Pong game in a bar and, you know, look at the, the Pong bar table and say this is epic. So... What we did was we kind of, with the character of Flynn, we added kind of an epic character to a non-epic world. And I think that for the people that struggled with Tron, and some people still do, and say, you know, I don't get that movie, why are people excited about it? I think what, what they struggle with, even though they wouldn't necessarily say it, is they struggle with the idea that Something epic can come, and significant or grand can come out of something that isn't. Well, and and to kind of continue your your point, uh, you know, if you look at it on on the scale of something like Star Wars or Thor, you're talking about this cosmological scale, and when you're talking about Tron, you're talking about diving into a a virtual space that's confined within a very you know, limited physical space. It's within a computer. It's almost like you're literally going as small scale as you can get. We're talking about information, not even a physical thing at this point. Right. Well, that's, that's, I think one of the reasons people are drawn to take sort of sanctuary in the digital world. And we do it all the time is because we control it. It's finite. Mm-hmm. You know, even though it's gotten as complex as it is, compared to the universe, it still feels like it's ours. We can manage it. We we put it together. We can alter it. 
But, you know, the universe, we're getting really bad at dealing with the universe. And um, so I, I think, well, it's also, this is all very generational. Mm-hmm. Because my generation traditionally, and certainly people older than me, just, I can't tell you, I don't know how old you are, but I'm sure you're younger than me. People were terrified of computers, just terrified. And Disney was terrified. Every, you know, everybody was. And it's like young people come along and they say, well, this scares the hell out of my parents. What power is actually here that does that? Mm -hmm. A little bit like, yeah, if dad has a problem understanding this and it freaks him out, I got to learn what this is about. And so the idea that something significant was going to come out of these, you know, these limited worlds with this, you know, information storage and manipulation, that was embraced by the next generation, but it was, you know, not of a, something that older people wanted to accept. Sure. And it created this weird schism over the years with Tron. I mean, you know, some people said, oh, my God, you know, how this is terrible if things go in this direction. And then 20 years later, they were doing ads for Apple computers. Mm -hmm. And I've I've seen that arc. And people don't change. Generations change. And um, the other thing, as long as I'm thinking down this avenue, is that I think... The fundamental change with with the threat of computers, at the time, you know, everybody was worried about, oh, you know, the computers are going to take my personal data and they're going to use it against me. I'm going to lose my privacy. And who could have predicted that they would take all our personal data, but they wouldn't have to battle us for it. We would line up to hand it over. Right. It's called Facebook, okay? It's called, you know, everything else uh, that, you know, wants our credit card number. And um, so that has been, you know, no one anticipated that. No one back then, and Tron didn't anticipate that either, that, you know, I talked to some of the heaviest people in the field of computers back then, and... You know, they would give me notes, and some of them would give me story suggestions, but no one ever gave me a note that said, you know, we're going to hand, it's not that we're going to fear it and battle it, we're going to run towards it as fast as we can. And and I've spent a lot of time thinking about how that really happened or what that really means and what, what are the repercussions of that, and what I came away with on that is that that uh, computers put us put the users in a situation where they said, "Look, we'll take care of the cognitive problems, so you're liberated from that." Mm-hmm. And what what you can do with your extra time is indulge your feelings, and you know because that's what we like to do. You know, we we get adding machines so we don't have to do the math. So then we can, you know, go to the movies instead of doing the math and we can enjoy our emotions and feelings. And that has continued 
to advance. You know, it used to be like, okay, I'm not going to learn too much math because I have an adding machine, and, you know, now I have spell check. Well, you know, and then it's like, well, I don't, pretty soon I'm not even going to have to drive my car. Right. Drive itself. And so all these cognitive things are being, you know, we're so-called being liberated from. Yeah, we're offloading. And then we're just all about our feelings. And, you know, we wanted that for a long time. But in the past, people, humanity dreamt about it the other way. You know, for hundreds of years, people, philosophers, dreamt of a world that was guided by reason. Mm-hmm. Because it was too much about people's feelings. And, you know, science and philosophy advanced so we could get to this point where reason sort of determined our, our fate because reason is connected to underlying truth that endures. That's why, that's what reason is. But emotions don't work that way. Um, you know, you can think that it's worth, you know, dying one moment for something, you know. If I don't get invited to the prom, I should, you know, I'd be better off dead. And then a month later, you could forget that you ever felt that way. Mm-hmm. And so now we're, we're kind of living in the age of Trump, where... I'm digressing, I know, but we're living in the age of Trump where it's all about these feelings every day. Well, and, and, and we have we have the, a way of, of uh, expressing those feelings to a larger audience than ever before instantaneously uh, exactly. as soon as we and, feel and this them. Is, you know, so the cognitive power of computers has ironically completely liberated our emotional feely side, touchy-feely side. It's you know, Trump gets to send out every thought in his head mm-hmm. because of Twitter. Right. Whenever, you know, whenever, a, whenever a disgruntled uh, employee of Twitter isn't deleting his account. Yeah. So it, there's this weird relationship we, we've developed with technology, and I go all the way back to you know the early Tron days, and I I can see what we thought then, and I can you know I've experienced the arc. You know, from there to here, it's it's really interesting. Well, what's fascinating to me is that, you know, you talked about this this thing about computers that were very scary to one generation and very promising to the next. Uh, my background is interestingly, for me anyway, not, not in technology. My background, my scholarly background was in medieval literature and history. And the funny thing is you see the exact same story play out upon the invention of the Gutenberg press because it was taking yeah, yeah. taking books it. away from monks yeah. you know you take history repeats exactly yeah instead of instead of it being uh, the church that was completely in charge of creating manuscripts and books it now became the domain of printers who could pr- produce them much more quickly which meant that people could actually own books for the first time because yep. they weren't prohibitively expensive and that transformed the renaissance really you could argue that was an enormous influence oh, yeah. on it of course. Just as computers have been, granted, a much more accelerated, but a similar uh, transformative element in our own society. 
So this kind of knowing this sort of stuff, I mean, granted, a lot of this stuff kind of evolved over the years since Tron has come out and in some ways can change the way we view Tron, which I actually I think that's great for any piece of art, right? That you can revisit that piece of art and it means something new to you based upon your experiences and the way the world has changed. Uh, yeah, that's one and of the wonderful also things. a window into how, what our relationship was with all of those things, the, the things of the moment and eternal things at that moment in time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'll tell you another sort of past and future mechanism that I thought about primarily after I made Tron, which is that, you know, the character of Flynn is kind of, you know, I, afterwards I did quite a bit of study about the archetype of the shaman character mm-hmm. and what it, what does the shaman character do traditionally? And traditionally he, he heals a person who has lost their spirit because their spirit has gone into, you know, the nether world, the spirit world, and that is why the person here is sick. And the, the shaman has the power to cross over into the spirit world, and then because he has powers there, he can retrieve the spirit of his friend, bring it back to this world, and then put the two together. And I'm reading about this, like, you know, specifics about this 20 years later. And, and then I'm thinking about what Flynn did in the first movie. Alan and, you know, Laura come to him and they're sick. Why? Because they've lost their spirit. They've lost their programs. And it's making them sick. And he has lost information too. And then he ends up crossing over into the digital realm. And, you know, what does he do there? He frees them up so that they can now get in touch. You know, the information that is the Tron program can get in touch with, the user can get in touch with it. And, you know, and then he comes back to this world. And I thought, you know, this is is pretty crazy that it's the the role of the shaman, but in in a digital environment. And I wasn't really thinking about that when I came up with it. Well, and not only that, but a role of a shaman, a shaman taking the role of essentially the, our protagonist, uh, the hero of the, the story, the one who makes the who, who defeats the bad guy at the end. You know, we have Tron, but we follow Flynn. Obviously, that makes sense because Flynn is from our world. So we're seeing the world of Tron through his eyes. That's very necessary for the grounding of that for the audience. But it is yeah. also interesting that that in a traditional narrative, we would be following the story of Tron, right? You start, you follow the story of the guy who who slays the dragon at the end, uh, yeah. and so instead we're following the the character that enables that to happen. And, yeah, uh, one level up. Yeah, I mean it's pretty funny that moment when at the end of Tron, where she says, you know, Flynn really did it, and Tron doesn't know that you know he managed to overcome the MCP because of what Flynn did. That that happened on a whole a whole dimensional level above his head, literally. Mm-hmm. And he looks at her and he goes, Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't really know what to do with that information. Yeah. You know, and I just I I this thought popped into my head, which is that according to this definition of what a shaman is, 
you could almost say that uh, um, Wizard of Oz is a shaman story. Mm-hmm. That Judy Garland's character, she crosses over to the other world, and what does she do? She helps her friends become whole. She gets mm-hmm. them a heart, a brain. It's a very similar mechanism. Absolutely, yeah. It's uh, uh, it, interesting. I had not even thought of that, but that is a very a very apt uh, uh, comparison, especially since Dorothy again is going into a world completely unlike our own that has its own rules, yeah, that has yeah. its own history. I never thought of Dorothy as a shaman, but she is. Yeah. Well, I have another question for you. This is one that uh, that not only. Uh, I need to know, but my producer Ramsey needs to know, and that is uh, Master Control Program MCP, yeah. one of the one of the great villains of science fiction. Oh well, thank you. Yeah. What 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 was? Did you have any specific inspirations for MCP? Perhaps with any uh, 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 other organizations that might have three letters in their name or anything along those lines? Or um, from the beginning, he was always machine like. Mm-hmm. And when I went to, and there was a sort of Wizard of Oz component to him, too, speaking of Wizard of Oz, because, you know, he, he was smoking mirrors, and in the end he was that, you know, a little, it all started with that little old chess player. But um, when I went to I, they had, um, the, one of the three computer companies, they had a, created a juggling human character wearing a top hat who um, looked very human. He, he barely moved. He just stood in one position and his arms moved and he juggled a bunch of balls and uh, he, but he didn't speak or anything like that and I don't think he ever moved his feet either. And then I, I saw that we, I saw this I, this image popped into my head that like the Wizard of Oz we could have his face on this machine-like exterior that we had been creating for the MCP. And, uh, but then we couldn't render it in flesh tones and have it speak because we just didn't have enough computing power. So the only way we could actually do it was in wireframe. So, you know, we, we recorded David Warner's voice doing it, and then we altered his voice, and then we, you know, did what animators have always done is sync up the images, you know, the face with the, the soundtrack. And he, the MCP is really, I guess, the first talking head, the first CG character mm-hmm. that ever was. And I always like the idea that you can be outside of him or you can be inside of him. The scene where Sark is actually you know, at the pedestal and the MCP surrounds him. I, I like that, that, you know, it's all, that's a relationship with the technology. We can be objective to it or we can be subjected to being inside the technology and it completely surrounds us. I always pictured him as kind of a, a it's funny, processor, like a food processor, mm-hmm. because he's kind of like a juicer. Mm-hmm. You think about it, you know, he, he brings in these programs and he, 
these entities, and then he juices them to extract their information. And um, I'll tell you a little funny um, story about the MCP and Flynn, which is that I didn't know that Jeff, whose contribution, uh, I can't stop bragging about how, you know, great he is in that role, but... um, and I cast him, so the uh, that was my contribution. He did the rest, but uh, he um, I didn't know he was going to do this clue persona, and so we started filming the tank scene, and he was doing it, and it was really cool, and it was a daring move on his part. But then the MCP, the recognizers come and they capture Clue, and then they put him in the MCP. And uh, he starts getting derez, and then he starts screaming for his life. And Jeff delivers this great, you know, heartfelt moment of like, you know, I'm not giving in to you, MCP. But he doesn't do it in the clue voice. He does it as in his real voice. Mm-hmm. And neither of us caught that. No one caught that inconsistency. That if you think about it, that should have been in the Clue program voice, but and you know, but it isn't, and it's a little bit like it's kind of freaky because it's a little bit like Clue was dying, and then the last thing he did was act like you know a user just before the end. So that's you know was kind of a happy accident, but anyway, the the MCP was was like a, you know a food processor with people or characters, and um, that design actually did not change all that much. I mean, it was was worked over brilliantly by Sid Mead and improved a lot, but but the through line went back years. Well, I guess, uh, you know, to me, just seeing that that image – that that enormous head, that booming voice, it's consuming the the information uh, from from other programs. To me today, like when I think of the internet voice, that's the voice that's in my head. It's the voice of MCP as yeah. it's as it's consuming. And you know, talking again about prescience, like there's so much here about the the merging of what it is to be human and the technology that we create. Yeah, it really, really seems like the singularity, like that concept of the singularity of, of humans uh, elevating themselves to the next level, uh, perhaps merging with machines or incorporating machines in some way. Sometimes it doesn't involve that, but, I'll, but a lot of the yeah. versions of the singularity do. This seems like uh, it was very much in that, that sort of vein, like this idea of, of yeah, well, was, you know, there were no, we didn't use the term user before Tron, and people didn't know what the word meant. And people didn't have computers. I mean, there were no really, you know, a handful, but people were, and they were crude at best. So um, this whole idea of your sort of your alter ego, your avatar being, you know, in there in the form of your information, that just keeps building every year. So that, you know, it's, it's getting to the point where we really are creating as much as possible a doppelganger of ourselves digitally. Mm-hmm. 
And, um, I mean, I think what's interesting is that Nintendo, I've heard, has done studies on how people picture themselves in their mind's eye. And they've come to the conclusion that we, we imagine ourselves as, as somewhat a cartooned version of ourselves. And, and I think that's one of the reasons that Nintendo video games, as successful and brilliant as they are, I mean, part of that success, I think, comes from working with that theory that, you know, they're not realistic. Mm-hmm. And I think that the idea of a realistic double ganger, a sort of copy of ourselves, I think that would, that's a, in some ways maybe more challenging. And I think that's part of the challenge that we're actually facing. That, you know, we, we, it's, it's a little bit like not only, we're, we're creating a doppelganger earth and a digital one. And like I said earlier, I think we feel good about that because it doesn't confound us like the universe. It, you know, it has problems like hackers and trolls, but yeah, we can deal with that. Sure. But, you know. Well, because ultimately those are people. Those yeah, aren't, those exactly. Aren't, those aren't and we ineffable that. forces. What we don't understand is CO2. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I, uh, uh, well, Steven Lisberger, this has been a huge thrill for me to, to talk to the writer and director of, of a film that, uh, you know, what played a big part in my childhood and I watch it frequently. So I have, in fact, uh, I want to take this opportunity to thank you for your quarters. <laughs> oh, there have been an, I, I didn't even get into the arcades <laughs> section of this yeah. because, I mean, you know, I just have to add one footnote because what I can't resist, which is, you know, people always talk about, well, the first Tron, you know, it didn't make enough money. It wasn't E.T. Well, the movie paid for itself as a movie, but the video game mm. paid for the entire movie, too. No, many a week's allowance went into discs of Tron for me. I, yeah. uh, so, I, I remember the full console, like the, the one you would step in and play and, uh, and yeah, I played a lot of that game. Yeah. Do you know about the Tron ride in Shanghai? I have heard about this. I have not made my way to Asia yet. It is, Check it out on YouTube, oh. Tron Shanghai. And, um, it's pretty amazing. They worked on that ride for over 15 years before wow. it actually happened yeah i've heard of and, i've heard um, about a new one coming to uh walt yeah, disney world in orlando do, do it in florida now so i'm real excited about that yeah because I mean, you know the thing is like you said earlier people think of tron and i you know sometimes too literally like oh you know it's a small world in there you know it's a small world after all and but it's funny because with the tron ride the world of tron is immense Sure. And you're small and you get on the ride. And in some ways, that's the whole, you know, that's the, the most thrilling part, to be small and have that recognizer looming over your head, for instance. Yeah. To make that leap to realize, oh, you know, this world is not small. And so, yeah, it's really cool, the ride. But anyway, yeah, the game and the ride. <laughs> 
I, I, I mean, I can't wait to experience the ride. I really, I really am looking forward to that. Uh, the game remains one of my favorites. I'm a, I'm a child of the seventies and eighties. So the arcade experience was really an important one for me growing up. Uh, also Tron obviously being in that realm of, for a lot of people, it was kind of their introduction to this concept of taking, taking a very abstract idea in the form of computer program and really turning it into something relatable. I mean, to have a computer program that could technically just be, oh, well, this is just a spreadsheet program. But no, in this world, that is a, 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 a an anthropomorphic creation that can uh, fight for you. <laughs> it's a pretty amazing concept. Uh, I, I, this was a huge thrill for me. Uh, if, well, I enjoyed it too. Thank you so much. Yeah, if you get a chance to get a word in, I mean, I'll I'll totally be an extra in Tron Three. I'm I'm happy to to be okay. the yeah, just sitting at sitting off at the side. I'm perfectly fine. I just want to I want to be in the room where it happens, as they say. Yeah. Th- thank you for me joining too. me again, so, man. Okay. All the best. Take care. You too. Bye bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Mr. Lisberger. I could have easily kept talking for another hour or two with him, and I get the feeling he would have indulged me for as long as he had the time to do so. I've always had an appreciation for Tron. I've always enjoyed that movie ever since it first came out. But now that appreciation is even more profound, knowing the challenges that the team faced in order to produce this movie at the time that it was made, going to the point where you would swear that this was computer-generated imagery, and then knowing that it was hand-animated, hand-drawn on top of actual individual cells of film. It's incredible to think of how much work and care and love went into this film and created that distinctive look and feel. And also, I really do hope I can show up in Tron 3. The ball's in your court, Disney. Call me. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode with our conversation with the director of Tron. We will keep on going with this entertainment playlist. So stick around if you want to hear more. And if you have any suggestions for future episodes, send me a message. You can reach out on Facebook or Twitter. The handle is techstuffhsw, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.